Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham to get up and move to a land that he would show him. And in Genesis 13 and 17, God promised that land to him and his descendants forever to the Jewish people. And then in Genesis chapter 15, God ratified that promise with an unconditional covenant ceremony. He cut a covenant with Abraham. Now, if that's true, God promised the land to him, he made a covenant with him that is eternal, then why is it that the Jewish people rarely dwell securely in the land? What's up with that? Why have they been dispersed throughout the world on more than one occasion, as they are today? Why is there no peace for Israel? Why is there no peace in the Middle East, despite all the attempts to establish it? The Camp David peace agreements, the Oslo Accords, the the road map for peace, the work of our presidents in the past trying to bring about some sort of peace agreement. Why do none of them work? And today we're going to study some of the major reasons why, and they're a lot deeper than the talking heads uh, will tell you. You know, the talking heads in the universities and and on the TV, uh, what they make it out to be. But this is the way it is. This is how often is it the case that You know, behind the symptoms, below the surface, there is a root cause for what we see going on. uh, Behind the behavior, there's some sort of deeper reason for that behavior. And uh, that's what we're going to see today. The Bible shares some reasons that you won't see in the headlines that are actually the deeper issue behind what we see going on on the surface and what we see going on in Israel. So our goal in this study, I want to remind us, is to think biblically about Israel and the land of Israel, to have our thinking shaped not by the narratives out there in the world, but to be shaped by Scripture. And if you're, you're tired of not knowing what to believe because of all the conflicting information out there, you're just not sure what to believe, that's why we're here. That's why we're doing this. The Bible is where you need to turn. And so far in this study, we have observed some foundational concepts regarding the land of Israel, number one. Uh, and these are both worth repeating. Uh, God promised the land to Abraham, the first Jew and to his descendants, that that promise was ratified through a covenant. God cut a covenant with Abraham. Remember, he cut some sacrifices literally in half, laid them in half. There was, it was a bloody mess. That 
covenant, by the way, that bloody mess of a covenant, uh, is pictured in circumcision. And uh, this is a unilateral, unconditional, everlasting covenant. Unilateral meaning it's up to God alone to keep it, unconditional. There's no conditions that Abraham has to meet to keep this covenant going. And, uh, and if it did, if it was up to Abraham, well, uh, it wouldn't be in effect today, would it? It would have ended very quickly. And um, so that's the first two concepts. Then we asked the question, why did God choose this land? And the answer was that Israel was to be a godly influence on a wicked world. And this influence, global influence, was possible due to God placing Israel in the most strategic spot on the international highway of the ancient world. And I should have included this in last week's teaching, but here's a a map uh, that was drawn up in 1581 by a German theologian named Heinrich Buntin. He drew up a it's not your average map, though, is it? It's a theological map that depicts Israel and Jerusalem at the center of the three continents of Europe and Africa and Asia, and those are the leaves. It's called the, the Buntine Clover Leaf Map, and it just demonstrates the providential location of Israel and Jerusalem at the center of the world to influence it. And so we we came away from that message last week, understanding that the land and the people are inextricably linked in God's purposes. And today we're going to continue to study Israel in the past. We're going to work our way through the present and through the future, that sort of thing. But we're just going to keep tracing the the story of the land chronologically, doing a a lot of background work in Genesis still. It's hard to believe we're we're still going to spend time in Genesis today, but you can't understand the world without understanding Genesis. You're just not going to understand what's going on. You're not going to understand who you are. You're not going to understand where you came from, where you're going, without understanding Genesis. It is the foundation for the rest of the Bible. You can't understand your Bible without it. And so we're going to go back to Genesis 15, where God made that covenant again, remind ourselves of that. He said that Abraham's descendants would possess the land, but not for another 400 years. They would be strangers in a land that's not their own. They would be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And in the fourth generation, then they would return there. And uh, God prophesied that Jacob would go down to Egypt as a family. Abraham wouldn't inherit the land, but his descendants would. And it was Jacob, it was Israel, who ended up going down to Egypt as a family. And they come out 400 years later as a nation. Down as a family, out as a nation. And uh, I point that out because I want us to understand Abraham didn't inherit the land immediately. In fact, he never would in his lifetime. The Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11.9 describes him at this time as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So even though he settled in Hebron, he he never built a permanent house. He lived in a tent. He was a sojourner in in the land, and and the only land that we know that he owned was a burial plot in in Hebron, uh, today known as Machpelah. But uh, you see the, the massive structure that's been built over that burial 
the site now. And there's, a, there's an Islamic side and there's a, a Jewish side because they both claim to have Abraham as their, uh, their, their father in the faith. But uh, Abraham purchased this little tiny burial plot from a Hittite. as where Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah were buried as well. But at the, at the time that God made that promise, at the time that God made the covenant, the land belonged to the Canaanites, and we're going to get to that. But God, God's going to give the land of Canaan, as promised, to his descendants. And there's only one little problem. Again, he, he doesn't have any descendants. He's 75 years old, doesn't have any descendants. 85 years old, doesn't have any descendants. 99 years old, doesn't have any descendants. And uh, Sarah, she had been barren her whole life up till age 90. And, and because of this, they thought they would help God out. They thought they were going to help God fulfill the promise. And it involved a servant of theirs named Hagar. Look at, let's read Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Uh, Genesis 16, 1 through 16 records this episode with Hagar. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not borne him a child, but she had an Egyptian slave woman whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please have relations with my slave woman. Perhaps I will obtain, obtain children through her. And Abraham, uh, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave woman, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And then he had relations with Hagar, and she conceived. And when Hagar became aware that she had conceived, her, her mistress was insignificant in her sight. And so Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I put my slave woman in your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was insignificant in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Look, your slave woman is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. And so Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's slave woman, from where you have come, from where have you come and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And so the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. But he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in defiance of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even seen him here and lived after he saw me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahairoi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And so Hagar bore, him, bore a son to Abram, and Abram named his son, to whom Hagar gave birth, Ishmael. And Abraham, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. 
So strange to us and certainly not condoned by any means, what Abraham and Sarah agreed to back then was a legal practice. It was a pretty typical thing. And Abraham and Sarah seek to bear the, a descendant through Hagar. They think they're going to help God out. They're going to try to fulfill the promise through their own efforts. They think, well, we're not getting any younger, and people don't exactly have children at this age, so we better do something about it, right? And Hagar and Ishmael, Hagar has Ishmael, and, and, and they end up becoming a metaphor for bondage and works-based salvation, bondage to the law and a works-based salvation that God will not accept. And you read about this in Galatians 4. But what happens next is that Hagar kind of grows arrogant towards Sarah. Sarah starts to despise Hagar for what has happened, and she treats Hagar harshly. Hagar flees into the wilderness with her son heading down to the wilderness of Shur towards Egypt, and, and it's there that the Lord, the God who sees, meets with her. And I'm always very comforted by that fact. I don't know about you, but I am comforted by the fact that there is a God who sees. He sees you. He sees you in your pain. He sees you in your grief. He never takes his eyes off of you kind of thing. He knows exactly where you are. Even Hagar when she's out in the middle of the wilderness. And I just always found great comfort in that name of God. But God appears to her and and he says, name the boy Ishmael. And he will have innumerable descendants. However, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. His hand's going to be against everyone. Everyone's hand's going to be against him. And he's going to live in defiance against his brothers, in defiance of his brothers. And so many, under, many understand this as a reference to the Arab nations that, that surround Israel that come from him. He moves out away from Israel, outside of the promised land, near it, and then lives in defiance of it. And he's hostile towards his brothers who live in Israel. And so not only does he become a works-based salvation metaphor, but he becomes the father of Arab nations that live in hostility against the descendants of promise. And there is, there is evidence for that. I We've got a couple of uh, verses here you can even read about in the Bible. Ishmael's second eldest son, Kedar, is identified with Arabia in Isaiah 21, 13 through 17. Um, a 5th century B.C. description links Arabs with the king of Kedar. And it's also thought that his eldest son, Nebaioth, uh, becomes the father of the Nabataeans in the Arabian desert area. You know, we're out by Petra and that sort of thing in the north, northern uh, Arabian Peninsula. So it's just uh, these, these people groups out there. Genesis 17, 20, uh, actually God predicts that Ishmael would become not only a great nation, but the father of 12 princes, 12 tribes. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because who else becomes a great nation and, 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 the, and the father of 12 tribes? Isaac, right? Jacob, actually. Yeah, so, so both Isaac and Ishmael become a great nation. Genesis 25, 12 through 18 records the fulfillment of that, naming all of his descendants and these, his descendants, the names of his descendants, you can trace to that area of Saudi Arabia and uh, the Arabian Peninsula. And that's, that's where they settled. 
Genesis 25:18 says they settled from Havilah, north central Arabia, to Shur, which is just east of Egypt, going toward Assyria. He settled in defiance of all his relatives. And so he settles south and east of his brothers in the Arabian uh, desert. And it's interesting, and here's another interesting point, is that the Muslims who come along in the 7th century A.D. in Arabia, right, Mecca, that's where it's at, down there at the bottom of the map, but they trace their roots back to Ishmael. And what do, what do they do? What does Muhammad do, inspired by an angelic messenger? He rewrites the Bible, and he says that Ishmael is the real promised Child. And one of the myths that you're going to hear today is that the land of Israel was always, it was always Muslim, right? It was always Islamic territory, and that it doesn't belong to the Jews. And that's just, uh, the fact is, <laughs> right? it always belonged to the Jews. I mean, even archaeology, I mean, you don't believe the Bible, that's fine, but the archaeology, there's no evidence uh, for, for Muslims in the land like that. Uh, it, was, it was the Jewish people. Before that, it was the Canaanites. Islam wasn't even a thing until the 7th century after Christ. And so that's just uh, another myth-busting fact for us. And I'll just say this. You know, if, if an angel ever appears to you and, and brings you another gospel, Paul says, don't. Listen, Paul said, even if I come to you with another gospel and what I've preached, don't listen to me. Okay, it's so strange. I don't know if you've studied the history of Mormonism and, and Islam, but they both got their start in a very similar fashion from an angel, from an angelic being. And uh, just really strange similarities between Muhammad and Joseph Smith. And it's, and it's clearly satanic. I mean, we don't have time for it, but... What you see in Genesis, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, is that there's a godly line of descendants, the descendants of the promise, and then there is a satanic line. And Islam's just another satanic counterfeit, and it's a, it's a jealous one. But it's not like Ishmael doesn't inherit any land. I mean, he inherits more land than, than Isaac and uh, so Ishmael doesn't get a raw deal. He inherits plenty of land, great blessings. He becomes a great nation, 12 tribes. The trouble is that it's not the promised land. And that's the land that he wants. In Genesis 17, 17 through 19, Abraham tries to present Ishmael as the promised child of God, and God says no. Right? The, the second born, the, the second born Isaac by, born by God's power and God's grace when there's 100 years old, he's the one who's going to inherit it. Verse 19 of uh, Genesis 17 says, No, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you shall name him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And so that's fact number one today. The land is promised to Isaac, not Ishmael. Isaac's the son of the promise. And from there, Isaac married Rebekah, has twins, Esau and Jacob. And Esau comes out first. He's the firstborn. And it seems that, you know, culturally, normally, he would be the inheritor of the promise. But when Esau came out, who had his hand on Esau's heel? 
Remember? Yep, Jacob. Jacob had his hand on his brother's heel, and that was a picture of what was to come because Jacob was going to trip up his brother's birthright, and he was going to take the birthright from him. You guys all know the story, right? Esau, is, he's, a, he's a man's man. He's a burly man. He's a hunter, right? Everybody would like Esau, redneck. He bet he wore Carhartt, you know, and had a big old beard and lived up in the Upper Peninsula. But... Uh, that's the kind of guy I think of when I think of Esau, just a hairy man, a hunter. Jacob's more domesticated, you know, he's mama's boy, and lives at home, a crafty fella. Well, after a failed hunting trip, right, as many, of, many men are having this, this week, failed hunting trips, not me though, praise the Lord, um, Esau comes home from a failed hunting trip, to find Jacob cooking up some stew, and he's so hungry, he's so famished, he says, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, well, trade me your birthright. I'll give you some. And he does. He trades his birthright for a bowl of beans. It's unreal. And he becomes a metaphor for those who are going to live for the now in their, their lust rather than for what's spiritual, what's eternal, and it's spiritual blessings. And so, uh, not a wise choice. But then, in another long story, beyond that, Jacob tricks his elderly dad. Remember this? He puts hair on his arms to make it feel like, you know, he's, he's Esau. His, his dad's old, he's blind, he's, his eyesight's failing, and, and Isaac goes to bless the children, and, and uh, you know, Jacob just flat out tricked his dad with, at his mother's advice. And not saying that's the way you should do it. Isaac's not happy about it, but what has been done is done in Genesis 28, 1 says, that Isaac blesses Jacob willingly. It says in verse 3, chapter 28, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you may become a multitude of peoples. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you so that you may possess the land where you live as a stranger which God gave to Abraham. And in Genesis 28, 13 and 14, again, uh, the the... The, the land is promised to him. Remember, Jacob has a dream about a stairway to heaven, and the Lord speaks to him in this dream and saying, Behold, the Lord was standing above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the land on which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, first Isaac, then Jacob, or Israel, as became his name. Uh, Jacob meant trickster, somewhere, somewhere along there, and then Israel meant one who struggles or contends with God. Remember God, uh, he wrestled with him and, and won, and, and so he became this contender with God, and uh, yeah, it's just, that's the nature of Israel, contending with God, <laughs> and uh, the land, therefore, is, is promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we didn't go over all the verses, we just summarized some of them, but the Bible records this in really great detail, and, and it's, a, it's a bit pedantic, it's a bit repetitive, and, and for a reason, because Scripture wants us, the Lord wants us to know who is in that promised lineage? I mean, through whom is the promise is going to be fulfilled? Who, through whom, 
right? Isaac or Ishmael, is the Messiah going to come? Jacob or Esau? And it's very clear through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so far that the land is given to through whom the Messiah is going to come. It's, you know, it's not, neither, neither Isaac nor Jacob. Think about this. They're both the, they weren't the firstborn, and so it was contrary to culture, but God chose to give it to them. None of them deserved it. None of them did anything to earn it. Honestly, if you had to choose between Jacob and Esau, I think most people would choose Esau. He's a manly man, right? Jacob was kind of a deceitful. But at the end of the day, it happened, and it brought about God's will. And God's will that was declared before they were even born. Before they were born, God said the the elder was going to serve the younger. Esau was going to serve his younger brother. And uh, Esau ends up marrying into Ishmael's line. And him and his descendants become the Edomites. They live southeast of Israel, same, same territory. And they prove themselves to be hostile towards Israel at times. But uh, think about this. The whole earth we understand is the Lord's, isn't it? The whole earth belongs to Him, and He can give it to whoever He wants. He's sovereign over it. He's the one who created the nations. Do you realize that in Genesis chapter 11, 10, the table of the nations? God created the nations for a reason. that They are a safeguard against globalism. In, in the book of Acts, Paul's preaching, and he says that God determines the boundaries and habitation of all mankind. So he establishes borders. He establishes a nation's borders, and he can give it to, he can give the promised land to whoever he wants. And uh, that's just matter of fact, right? But what we've seen so far gives us the first reason why we don't see Israel dwelling securely in the land. And it's, and it's that there is some ancient spiritual animosity over the promised land. And who's the promised child? That explains a lot, I think. And then to discover a second reason, we need to fast forward to Mount Sinai. Jacob's descendants, Israel, they've developed into a great nation during their time in Egypt. They come out being led by Moses and, uh, and the Lord, ultimately, and they're, they're, they're given the law at Mount Sinai. And the law, uh, remember, is their national constitution. This is why you can't tell people to live under the law today. It doesn't make any sense. You were not Israel. We're not living in the land. You can't even keep it, even if you wanted to. It was a national constitution. It was how they were to govern themselves with this holy God, Yahweh, dwelling in their midst. And we talked about that last week. But the law was given in connection with another covenant that we call the Mosaic Covenant. This is, unlike the Abrahamic Covenant, this is a bilateral and conditional Covenant. It's bilateral in that both parties, God and Israel, are to keep it, and it's conditional in that there are conditions attached to it. There are if-then statements in it. If Israel obeys, then they would be blessed. And if they disobeyed, then they would be disciplined, or they would be cursed, we might say. God guaranteed blessings on them, 
in this covenant, right, security and prosperity in the land, if they agreed to the covenant. And they all said, yeah, we want those blessings. Let's do this. Exodus 19, 7 and 8 say, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They shouted it. Let's do this thing. And so they agree to this conditional covenant. It's, you might call it a Caesarean vassal treaty back then. Uh, everybody was familiar with these types of covenants. But that was at Mount Sinai. They said, let's do this. They entered into the covenant about 40 years later in Deuteronomy, after that generation of Israelites died in the wilderness, remember, because they were faithless, they wouldn't take the land, and the next generation is getting ready to enter the land. And so, in preparation for that, they have the law recited to them again, and that's what Deuteronomy means. It means second law giving, deutero meaning second, and just think deuce, right? Second, and then you have namas, which is lost, Deuteronomy. So, second law giving. So, the law is repeated. The stipulation of the law are read to Israel again, to the nation, getting ready to enter the land. And, and, the, and uh, Moses and the elders command the people to obey God and find blessing or disobey and find cursing. And you, read, you can read about these in chapters 27 and 28. Uh, this is where we see the, the blessings and cursings. Listen to this. Blessed shall you be in the city and in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies to rise up against you, to be defeated before you. They will come against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. And just the blessings go on and on. And in verses 9 and 10, he says this, He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you if, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And so all the people of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. So there's the blessings, some of them. And then he starts to lay out the curses in verse 15. But it shall come about that if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe uh, to do all of his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all of these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke, in all you undertake to do, until you are destroyed, until you perish quickly, on account of the evil of your deeds, because you have forsaken me. These curses seem like they go on forever, and there's way more curses than there are blessings, but that's chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. To me, I, I would probably consider this the ugliest chapter of the Bible. It is an ugly chapter, it's so awful. But I always keep in mind when I'm reading it, when I get to it, that 
that this is what I deserve as a sinner. This is what any of us deserves as a sinner. Before a holy God, we deserve nothing good. We deserve cursing for our sin. But one of the, the curses relevant that's laid out, that's relevant to our main question today is in verse 64, the curse of dispersion or scattering. Rather than being established, they're going to be scattered Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your fathers have not known. Among those nations you shall find no rest. And there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. So if Israel doesn't obey, they're going to be dispersed. From the land, they're going to be expelled from the land, scattered to the four corners of the earth. That's the history of the Jewish people, isn't it? Short term and long term. And we see in these chapters, though, this, this is the patternable divine program of God for Israel. You can track how God operates with Israel. When they disobey, you see dispersion. That dispersion is then followed by preservation. That preservation, even though they've been dispersed, is followed by restoration. And then that's followed by reconciliation. This is what you see in the Jewish history. They will enter the land. They will disobey God. And it's even prophesied. (laughs) When Moses is delivering the second law-giving, He says at the end of this, you guys aren't going to keep it. By the way, you're not going to keep it. Because you need a new covenant. And they're a part of that too. And so is the land. But you're not going to keep it. And yet they still enter into it. And though they're dispersed, they're going to be preserved. They're going to be restored. Why? So many people want to say God's done with Israel. He can't be. He never can be because he's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to his covenant, short-term and long-term. Short-term being the Assyrian exile of the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. The Babylonian exile of the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, 586 B.C. And then long-term, referring to the end times events or the latter days. Chapter 4, verse 30 speaks of the latter days. That's a prophetic end times term. That's an end times phrase. And in the latter days, there's going to be a generation of Israelites after a time of distress who will enter into the new covenant and they are given hearts to obey God. In fact, Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy chapter 30 become the basis for the message of the prophets, which talk about a restoration for Israel that has not happened yet. Not even after the exiles to Assyria and Babylon. Point being, even though they experience dispersion, they experience restoration as well because of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The gifts and the calling of God to Israel, Romans 11 says, are irrevocable because of who God is. 
Psalm 89, verses 30 through 37, read this. It sums it up well, what I'm talking about. If his sons abandon my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their wrongdoing with the rod and their guilt with afflictions. But, but I will not hold my favor from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. That lineage further is clarified down to David later on, remember? His descendants shall endure before me forever in his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and a witness in the sky is faithful. It's been said that you can get rid of the Jewish people if you could just knock the sun and moon and stars out of the sky. Then they'll cease to be a nation. Otherwise, God's going to preserve them. And reason number two, the land always belongs to the Jews. This is what we've deducted from this last point here. The land always belongs to the Jews, but disobedience brings exile from it. So their expulsion does not change their right to the land. They own it forever, but if they fail to obey God, they are expelled. And we've seen that happen uh, in the, the captivities with Assyria and Babylon, but then we've seen it with their rejection of Christ as the Messiah, and Israel is still in exile today. While approximately 7 million Jews are in the land today, uh, many millions, 6 million in America, 9 million around the globe, still live outside of the land. And those who are dwelling in the land are not dwelling securely as we've, we've witnessed. Recently, it's just constant attacks from their neighbors. They suffer constant attacks from their neighbors. Israel is surrounded by 22 Arab states and 39 Muslim states. And it's interesting that people want to call Israel the bully. The reality is that there's more to this than what the headlines are telling us. But that's, isn't that always the case? Right? There's, there, there's more below the surface. All we see are the symptoms, but there's a root cause and it's deep and it's spiritual and uh, the same I think hatred that existed back in back in the garden Satan hating mankind I mean Satan that hate is still alive and well today anti-Zionism anti-Semitism it's still satanically inspired if you have a love for Israel Nothing explains that except God at work in you. Because the natural thing that, 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 that Satan wants to, to do is to, to stir up hatred for Israel. Satan knows God has a plan for Israel. And if, if he can wipe them out, then he can destroy God's plan. He can destroy God's credibility. But we all know he's not going to be successful, right? Because God is faithful, and he always preserves his people. And so let's go home with that in mind, God's faithfulness. And then let's go home with the fact that it doesn't matter if it's Israel 
or, or Arab nations or anybody else. Everybody needs the gospel. That's what's going to bring peace between neighbors now. And that is what's going to bring peace in the future. Actually, one of the reasons why there's no peace in the East is because the Prince of Peace himself has not come to rule over the nations. And uh, we expect that to come to fruition in his timing, right? Maybe we'll look, look at more of some of those prophecies uh, next week, Lord willing. But let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word, the revelation of it. What, a, what an amazing thing we've been able to look at this morning. And to see the world and some of the events that have taken place through the lens of Scripture and the light of your word. And I just pray that you continue to ground us in it. And uh, bless this church family, Lord. You say, and I believe this promise still stands true today, that those who bless Israel are going to be blessed. Those who curse Israel are going to be cursed. Those who take Israel lightly are going to be cursed. That's the, the definition of that word there. Oh, I pray that we wouldn't take Israel lightly. Lord, that you bless us in return and help us to, to stand up for, for the Jewish people, even the modern state of Israel, and uh, to do so critically, though, as well, and uh, continue to inform us on how to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.